It's amazing how quickly they built out their transportation platform. What we commonly refer to as FBA. And putting my strategy hat on here, if I'm an aggregator, what do I want to do to mitigate that risk? I want to diversify. And one of the things which we showed is that you can really give a brand a new rate of growth by expanding into new channels. Hey, folks, welcome back to the uh, 10K Collective podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon sellers. If you own your own brand or private label, custom products, whichever way you want to put it, part of the amazing FBA family of podcasts, which is generally about selling on Amazon. Today, we are talking, uh, we continue a conversation about Amazon aggregators with uh, Joe Hogg and Rob Salmon of Global Wired Advisors. Global Wired Advisors are fundamentally brokers, although they, they would sort of give a more sophisticated name than that, I guess an investment bank, uh, but they have that Wall Street background and rigor and understanding of markets, which I think is really, really helpful to make sense of who are aggregators, does it matter if I'm going to sell to them, how do I approach them and what sort of drives them. So they're becoming such big players in the space. I think it's really important that we take the time and energy to understand who they are and what's driving them. So with no further ado, uh, let's plunge back into the conversation with Joe Hogg and Rob Salmon of Global Wired Advisors. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. We are talking to the chaps over at Global Wide Advisors, Rob Salmon and Joe Hogg. They're research specialists and they've compiled a, a report recently about aggregators. In our previous episode with these guys, we talked about the space in general and the developments they've seen over the last while and what they see coming up with aggregators and the e-commerce space as a whole. Really, really worth listening to if you're in the space. And if you're listening to the show and you sell on e-commerce, you are in the space, my friends. Today, we're going to talk about the risk factors that come with e-commerce and the aggregator model. Before you tune out, if you're not thinking of selling your business, I can tell you that most of these risk factors apply to all of us in the e-commerce space. So you'd be very, very well advised to listen to this insight that these guys who have a very rigorous Wall Street background can give you about the e-commerce space as a whole. Enjoy the show. You've got six risk factors you've talked about. One thing I just want to mention is just having spoken to one of the big aggregator brands, and I was speaking to the, the guy who's responsible for Europe, and he was saying, people talk about acquisition and operations as problems, <laughs> separate problems, so picking the right companies and paying the right amount for them, and then running them. But he said the other piece is integration. In other words, you've got <laughs> the dog that caught the car phenomenon. You bought, say, 100 brands or 50, whatever. Now you've got to actually get those economies of scale <laughs> but first you've got to integrate lots of little mom and pop businesses or something along those lines you deal with these aggregators frequently you also deal with the sellers of the individual businesses what's your feeling of how successful aggregators are being in actually integrating and getting these famed economies of scale which is part of what they're offering it's shifted a little in the early days a year and a half ago aggregators were really looking for economies of scale around the brand itself. They were looking for basically ways to consolidate manufacturing and supply. They were looking for ways to consolidate, say, product development. 
among similar brands. Again, the thesis was we're going to make acquisitions in a strategic way. We're going to focus on baby products. We're going to focus on toys and games. We're going to focus on pet. And we're going to try to build brands that are similar so we can get those economies of scale that I just mentioned. Again, in the land rush phase, a lot of brands were acquired that just did not naturally fit together. They were just very different. They had different manufacturing sources, different supply chains, different product development. The economy of scale focus really became, let's figure out how to optimize, say, PPC across all of these brands. Let's figure out how we can develop a better DTC strategy, perhaps away from Amazon through redoing websites and brand messaging. I think the economy of scale focus shifted a little bit and the integration probably wasn't as synergistic as people had hoped. But that doesn't mean that the brands aren't successfully acquired, moved into portfolios well and optimized. We see that as really the thing that aggregators do best. They will identify a brand that given what their internal talents are and abilities are and competencies are, they'll three, four, five, or six X that particular brand in a very short period of time that pays for a lot of lack of synergies, if you will, among brands because you're generating so much cash flow. So they're good at blowing up brands, even if their business is a bit of a mess relative to what they were hoping it to be. You still seem fairly bullish on aggregators, which is good to hear because a lot of us are selling to them or considering selling to them. So that's good to know, especially if you've got an earnout in the structure. So you've identified six key risks nonetheless, which I'd love to go over because I think it's good to evaluate risk in a grown-up kind of way, which is one of the things you guys do very well, typical of professional investors, I guess. So the first one is immediate post-acquisition shock to a portfolio company. What's that about? So one of the key things after a brand has been acquired is a drop-off in sales, which is, it's just really tough to navigate. And there is actually a decent amount of operating leverage in these business models. It's tough to recover just mathematically. Anytime you have a decline, if you go down by 10%, for example, you've got to increase sales more than 10% just to get back to square one. In our analysis, when we looked at what does a 10% hit to sales mean, it actually drops EBITDA by over 40%. There are things you can do to try and mitigate some of that drag. When I take a step back and say, all right, what is the biggest risk? A, a brand, it was driven by an idea that an entrepreneur had. They are the lifeblood of the company. And in many cases, they're receiving a payout and exiting the business fully to an aggregator within six months. That's a really short period of time. And, and how is that brand transition once the visionary isn't part of it. That falls into both our first and second risk. So the second risk you're calling execution risks. What is it that they're executing badly? Execution risk is associated mainly with just finding good brands that can be acquired and scaled. There are a lot of aggregators. There has been a lot of money that's moved into the space and finding the right brand that can be moved through the aggregator model successfully is probably the biggest part of execution risk. Keep in mind that with any startup, and we're very much in the startup phase with aggregators, as you're scaling and putting staff on and building out offices, you're going to have a great deal of overhead. And if you are not able to acquire brands and build revenue, then you're going to find yourself burning cash. 
So execution risk, we think, is the ability primarily to find brands, find revenue, scale brands, build revenue to cover a startup costs predominantly. Great. But the third risk you got, you mentioned operating leverage. Leverage is a very polite word for debt. I guess that the, the third high degree of financial leverage obviously means you've got a sort of barrier to success. You've got to make enough money to cover the cash flow, to cover the debts. It's also, presumably, you've got to go and talk to some very serious creditors who will be getting a bit nervous if your EBITDA suddenly drops after they've lent you a load of money. How does it work in the boardroom of aggregators? There is a fair amount of debt that's involved in most raises. We have significant credit facilities that are being provided for these acquisitions. And debt covenants or the rules that are being applied to tapping those sources of funds can be quite restrictive. The performance of a given fund, the performance of a given asset, oftentimes is going to dictate how much incremental money you can draw. The bigger point with respect to leverage is that though it magnifies returns, things are good, it magnifies losses. So if you're making acquisitions using debt, levering those acquisitions, then when things are going well, that's fantastic. You're covering principal and interest and you're getting tremendous returns on equity. However, when things slow down, as they've done over the course of the last year, then you're not only having the the added cost of debt, you're making much less money. So you can find yourself in in trouble quickly with respect to leverage. That makes sense. It, it seems to me a fairly high risk, high return model, which again, feels a bit more like a sort of bubble or maybe startup is a better way of putting it. It's a new phenomenon, which is in its early stages is maybe the, the way that you're seeing it more than me, which is good to know. <laughs> Amazon platform risk is the fourth one. This to me always struck me as very interesting that the whole thing even took off. Because to me, that feels like a very big one. As an Amazon seller, we're always afraid of the knock at the door, as it were, by Amazon suspending our accounts. I think one of the constraints to this phenomenon taking off was investors wrapping their hands around the risk of Amazon in aggregate. Whether it's coming into a potential brand where you're selling as a as a generic, if you will, the private label, or you drop it off in, in, in terms of the, the scorecard on the, the search optimization. Investors have struggled getting behind businesses where Amazon is a potential competitor because that business can move away really quite quickly. I've covered transportation companies for a long time. FedEx saw they and Amazon parted ways. So their revenue went to zero. There have been numerous companies like that pandemic started to change some of those perceptions. And that's part of the reason that we've seen the aggregators be able to raise incremental capital. It's the success of the third-party sellers in aggregate, who are now over half of the Amazon platform that has helped to mitigate this risk, but it's still a risk. And no one wants to see the rules of the game change midway through the game, and that can happen. Looking to increase your online sales? Join Ecom Events at one of their four events throughout the USA. Miami in January, San Diego in March, Minneapolis in July, and New York City in October. The conference offers learning, tips, and tools needed to increase your sales, networking, food and refreshments, prize drawing, and lots of fun for all seller levels. Head on over to www.e-comevents.com and register today with promo code AMAZINGFB to save $50 off your ticket cost.
The only thing that strikes me with that, third-party sellers are, what is it, 60% of Amazon now, and I'm sure they'll push it to 80 because my understanding, it's in their interest to push the third-party sellers in aggregates as far as possible because they lose money as a first-party seller. I think they lost $40 billion last year. Depending on the services business is more profitable. It's a great business. You're basically a tool ring for anyone reaching your customers. It is. However, that's in aggregate. I don't think any individual seller is going to be any more proof against suspension than previously, though. So what's your perception of platform risk? Do you think the aggregators have gone from overweighting the risk and being too afraid to underweighting the risk now? No, I don't believe so. I think that Amazon is in the process of transforming itself from a product company into a service company, as Rob mentioned. And I think that transformation is going to accelerate. Amazon internally is looking at the good side of the business and comparing it to the FBA, AWS side of the business. And they're quickly realizing that it is much more profitable, the service side of the business. And I think that you're going to see sellers as a percent of that volume go to 80%. I think that the company recognizes that's the future. Platform risk is to some extent always going to be there. But as Amazon becomes more of a service company, I think that platform risk goes down somewhat. I'll give you an example. Today, a lot of traditional private equity is somewhat shy about going all in on buying Amazon-based companies just because they're worried about Amazon platform risk. They're worried about having concentrated revenue in the hands, effectively, of another company. And I think that they're getting more comfortable with that as we go forward again, because Amazon is in the process of transforming itself. Platform risk too is Amazon's ability to keep up with business. Amazon has doubled FBA capacity over the course of the last year. They've doubled the size of the company in handling third-party business, which is extraordinary given all the constraints that we're seeing during the pandemic. And that, that too is a source of platform risk. How much inventory can you move through Amazon? What are their algorithms going to allow you to do? It's amazing how quickly they've built out their transportation platform, what we commonly refer to as FBA. And putting my strategy hat on here, if I'm an aggregator, what do I want to do to mitigate that risk? I want to diversify. And one of the things which we showed is that you can really give a brand a new rate of growth by expanding into new channels, whether that's walmart.com, another marketplace platform, maybe you go online retail, or you enhance your own direct-to-consumer online website and use that as a way to drive traffic, one, back to Amazon, which will help you in your rankings, or two, sell directly through there. It's just a good way of, of reducing the amount of sales over time that, that you're dependent on Amazon for. That makes sense. So in other words, they're buying a potential CPG or co- consumer goods company that happens to start on Amazon, but they're trying to get off Amazon Like any Amazon seller I know, they've got that in common with the rest of us, I think. So the two other risks that you flagged up in your report are economic slowdown and and shifts in consumer spending. So let's talk about economic slowdown first. Britain is a bit slower than a lot of people were hoping in terms of GDP growth for 2022, possibly because of the pandemic, but possibly Brexit. America is looking like it's booming. How big a risk is that as part of these different risks? Insofar as economic growth in general, in the U.S., I, I think that if we look at most forecasts on Bloomberg, so where we expect GDP to be, we see above-trend growth going into next year. It's still going to be somewhat constrained. We are continuing to see bottlenecks in supply chains. We certainly don't have an aggregate demand problem in the U.S. 
I think that we have a constrained supply problem at present. That's probably going to work itself out, I think, over the course of probably another year and a half. And in the meantime, aggregate demand is going to be a little bit constrained by the fact you just can't get a lot of things. Probably the best example of that is the automobile industry in the U.S. today. Because of chip shortages, we aren't moving nearly as many automobiles in the U.S. as we have in the past. I think that from the standpoint of Amazon and and consumer goods, though, we're probably not going to see a slowdown there because, again, if we re-examine what happened during the pandemic, we saw all of the spending that was going toward services shift toward goods. Two-thirds of the U.S. spending in the U.S. economy is on services, and, and about a third is on goods. During the pandemic, there were obviously no services. Everything was shut down, bars, restaurants, et cetera. People were locked at home. All of that spending found its way into consumer goods primarily through Amazon. In general, with respect to economic growth, it's not nearly as booming as it could be probably going into next year again because of supply side constraints. When we think about that in context of the six risks we lay out, it's a much lower risk here given our outlook. Interesting. I think that may be quite different in Britain. The supply constraints are going to uh, apply, but I think there's greater inflation risk here. If you look at the inflation history in the US and the UK, it's much worse than the UK over the last few decades. Also, it's a smaller country. It's it's more constrained in multiple ways. I don't know. We'll have to see. The nice thing is for any British people listening that have businesses, a lot of them sell into the US primarily as their main market. So we don't have to be constrained to the UK economy, even if you're bearish about it. So obviously you guys uh, have created a, a really excellent report here. Well, I think understanding the people who are going to be buying something is marketing 101. And if you're selling fast moving consumer goods, all the good marketers know that you've got to really think about your buyer. But when you're selling a business, the same applies. It's just obviously not a familiar territory for most of us, but you guys are very familiar with that. So I think the language, the mentality, the education is really valuable. So I'd really urge anyone who's even thinking of of selling a business, or if you're not thinking yet, you should be (laughs) with the multiples out there, www.globalwiredadvisors.com forward slash research, really worth reading. Any final comments from either of you, Rob or Joe? Michael, thank you so much for having us. I I don't know if Joe's got anything else you'd like to add. No, no, I have feel free to to reach out to us at any time if you have any uh, questions about the material that we've put out in the aggregator report. And we, we have another focus report coming out here in the next week or two on supply chains. And we'll be sure to get that to, to Michael so that everyone can check that out as well. Definitely. And by the way, I'd love to get you guys back on the show to talk about that because supply chains are such a big topic, right? That's the number one problem for pretty much everyone in the CPG space, right? So I think that would be a great uh, topic of discussion. So I look forward to reading that as well. But for the moment, gents, many thanks for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Michael.